0: Welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the NFL season a week away and The Ringer's fantasy football coverage gearing up, we have released our first ever fantasy football hall of fame. We assembled a panel of voters, including Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal, Robert
1: Mays, Mallory Rupin, and more to induct the 25 best fantasy football players of all time. You can find the rankings by going directly to fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And for more fantasy football coverage, check out the Fantasy Football Podcast on Apple,
0: Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, went apoplectic when a Twitter user called him a bedbug. What I want to know is, what insect could someone call you to drive you off
2: Twitter? Oh, definitely mole cricket. I'm just kidding. I'm mean, acting I like, <laughs> I, like I have an opinion on from. this subject. Um, no, I know because I, I Googled list of insects. Uh, I'm trying to see if any of them actually bother me to read out loud. Booklouse? Booklouse seems like something yes. someone would...
0: I was weirdly just going to say that. Did, didn't we have a booklouse bit in, in high school? Did, weren't we weirdly obsessed with that?
2: Or is it, Am I making that up? You may, you may or may not be. That sounds totally plausible.
0: You were the only person at our high school I could have possibly have talked about that well there's actually a couple more they know who they are Booklouse.
2: our producer Jim just texted me the word cockroach except broken up into syllables as cockroach and, it, and I'm laughing for some reason hysterically about this I don't know.
0: as children of the south and or Texas the cockroach was my mortal enemy as a kid that was the one oh, thing yeah. I just terrified I don't know if I would care if somebody called me that but I was absolutely terrified of cockroaches Mm-hmm. And, and if they flew, if they could just achieve uh, liftoff, yeah. I was even more afraid.
2: They were, Yeah, I remember moving. When I moved to Texas, I was like, not only was I, there were cockroaches in the house because it had been like, you know, semi, it would be sitting empty for a little while. But also they were, people were calling them water bugs. Like as... It, <laughs> because i guess that just like put a little like pretty face on it or something like that but that somehow made it even more terrifying that this is such a problem that it needs that that it needs a cover story like it's it's just it's i don't know I'm, i'm sure there's a distinction there but if you call me a water bug that might be a terrible insult too
0: this podcast has the lifespan of a mayfly this is the press box a part of the ringer podcast network Hello, media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots to get to today. We're going to talk about Lawrence O'Donnell's faceplant on MSNBC, the cheer you heard among reporters at the news that we're only going to have one Democratic debate next month. We've got podcasts and plagiarism, an obscure newspaper that buddied up to Donald Trump plus listener mail. But, David, I want to start off by talking to you about bedbugs. Yeah. Should we let on how excited you were by this topic? If uh, if we rank David's excitement about possible press box segments from one to ten, Kirsten Gillibrand leaving the presidential race being a one, I think Bedbug gate was like a 19. You were so <laughs> pumped for this.
2: Listen, I've never actually had bed bugs in my life. I'm knocking on wood uh, right now. I have had termites for what that's worth. Um, but the... Um, so I, maybe I'm maybe I have the ability and, you know, I, I'm privileged enough to be irrationally excited about bedbugs topics without any without any baggage. But, yeah, I think what excited me most is this is is the, it, that it's a two tiered story that there was actually I thought I was I was laughing about a bedbug story. And then there was another bedbug story. So, well, I guess we'll get into all that.
0: <laughs> it started with a report on Monday that, quote, evidence of bedbug activity was found in the newsroom of The New York Times. I believe Ashley Feinberg over at Slate had that first. Uh, good tweet by attorney Lindsay Barrett, quote, I think you mean there's insect tinged problem in the New York Times newsroom. not uh, bed bugs. Yeah. That's, that's I like it. Uh, David Carve, professor at George Washington University, took the opportunity to tweet, the bedbugs are a metaphor. The bedbugs are Brett Stevens. Stevens, of course, being the frequently owned columnist at the New York Times. Well, nobody saw David Karp's tweet at all. As Karp himself later noted, he got nine likes and zero retweets. But Brett Stevens, who apparently left his Twitter account to his assistant in June 2017, he is not on Twitter. He is just on it indirectly. Saw the tweet and at 9, 10 p.m. sent this note to Karp. Dear Dr. Karp, someone just pointed out a tweet you wrote about me calling me a bed bug. I'm often amazed about the things supposedly decent people are prepared to say about other people, people they've never met, on Twitter. I think you've set a new standard. I would welcome the opportunity for you to come by my home, meet my wife and kids, talk to us for a few minutes, and then call me a bed bug to my face. That would take some genuine courage and intellectual integrity on your part. I promise to be courteous no matter what you have to say. Maybe it will make you feel better about yourself. Please consider this a standing invitation. You are more than welcome to bring your significant other, cordially, Brett Stevens. So nice of Brett to include a plus one there. Always, always <laughs> want to do that. Uh, turns out not so cordially, however, because Stevens, in writing that note, cc'd Karf's university provost as a way to get Karf in trouble. As one does. <laughs> as one does. Uh, so two bad things are happening for Brett Stevens here, David. Instead of just sending the email, he was using the weight of the New York Times to get this guy in trouble at work, which is not dissimilar to Jonathan Wiseman sending a note, not just to Roxanne Gay, but to Roxanne Gay's publisher when he was demanding an apology. That is number one, is it not? It's the number one takeaway here? Number one reason why we're in deep shit. And we'll get to number two in a
2: minute. Oh, Uh, yes. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, it's... uh... I don't know if this is if the official if if there is a more direct email to this uh, to to Carps boss or if GW Provost uh, is actually like the you know the 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 right email handle, but it certainly seems like you're just like ccing management vaguely with the with the direct uh, you know as as a direct attempt to get someone's uh, get someone fired.
0: Not even vaguely. I mean. You know, how do you how do you CC someone vaguely? Right. It wasn't I don't even think it was. It was just it was just sent to both of them, wasn't it? And yeah. the idea that you're just going over this guy's head and saying, do, do you realize your employee insulted a New York Times columnist on Twitter? Yeah. That he made a joke. Yeah, it's about, really about weird. Carf wrote in Esquire, it means yeah. Stevens was trying to send a message that he stands above me in the status hierarchy. It was an exercise in wielding power using the imprimatur of the New York Times to ward off speech. That he finds distasteful okay that was mistake number one mistake number two was stevens just messed with the wrong university professor because carf <laughs> teaches strategic political communication <laughs> you know maybe next time you go pick somebody in the classical civ department or something like that but he teaches <laughs> he teaches this subject and carf rights and esquires luck would have it i have little to fear from brett stevens i'm a tenured academic with the support of my university administration and my disciplinary peers. I am also like Stevens, a white guy. If either of us was a woman or person of color, we would endure far worse insults online every day. Um, And then Carf proceeded to give every interview and apparently write every possible op-ed all in extremely measured lightly comic tones to show how utterly silly and petty that email was.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was I you know, I think in the in the age of social media, um where we all kind of have to teach ourselves lessons about logging off, you know, about taking a breath before you click tweet. Um there is something sort of like deliciously old-fashioned about typing out an entire tisk tisking email um and still and still sending it uh, you know with a hot head. I mean, cuz that's presumably what he did. Um or just, you know, you're right with great with 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 way too much, um, you know, presumption, power tripping, privilege, whatever else. I mean, it, it just seems it, it's it's just it just seems very quaint for some reason. But it also is just like if he had gone out of it, if he if he had been deliberately, you know, if making a, an attempt at self-parody, he wouldn't he could not have done a better <laughs> job it, it, to, to undermine not only his like specious arguments about campuses and free speech and everything else, but. Um, but also just to like, just to be—I mean, just a parody of the level of self-importance it takes to cough out some of the op eds that he writes. I mean, it's ju- it's just just so amazing.
0: Can can we follow that thread and just make attempt to understand Brett Stevens for a second? He is Let's do it. He is devoted to this pre-internet ideal of courteous dialogue between a columnist, other columnists, and the columnist readers, and he's not just sad about this. He is attempting to reach out and civilize every one of his critics. Cause he did it to (laughs) Samir call over a deadspin. Did the same thing. Let let me just tell you about how journalism works here. Let me, let me, let me send you this little note. Um, and now he's trying to do the same thing. Like not, not just like, you know, Hey asshole, why are you calling me a bed bug? But I would like you to come (laughs) over to my house so we can talk about this like gentlemen. And, yeah. and then you can see that I am not a metaphorical bed bug, but I am, I'm a real person, flesh and blood, just like you quaint is an, is a good word for it. <laughs> it also just seems insane. And yeah, like, it's not like, it's not going to work. <laughs> like we're not, it's, he is not going to find whatever he thinks Washington journalism was like in 1985 here in 2019.
2: At first reading, I just read it as a threat. I mean, it seemed like the like the inviting your wife was like a cover story. I mean, was was a was a a slight cover for just like, do you want to take this outside? But you know, maybe that wasn't his intention at all. But the whole thing just seemed real. I mean, it, like whatever. If whether he was hearkening back to a more genteel era of public discourse, which probably never existed, or he was hearkening back to you know the old west? or Hamilton Burr or whatever. I mean, just like it's, it's uh, I mean, I guess that's only Brett Stevens will ever know the answer to that. And he presumably won't tell us um because he's, you know, already been out there giving his side of the story, which is uh, completely nonsensical.
0: A lot of people harken back when they don't like being criticized and they say, sure. can't, can't we go back to an old, you know, when when they're the young punk criticizing other writers, they're, they're totally fine with the world. But as soon as they start taking a few bullets, they're like, ooh, why, why can't we go back to when, when things were civilized? Why can't we do that? Um, Stevenson went on MSNBC Tuesday morning and attempted to history-splain his way out of trouble. Listen to this. Is that the worst thing that you have ever been called on social media? There's a, there's a bad history of being called, uh, of being analogized to insects that goes back to a lot of totalitarian regimes in the past. <laughs> now, come on. one bullshit two if you're devoted to civil discourse then you are not taking a silly joke and ratcheting it up to totalitarian regimes that that is not part of of even mythical civil discourse right (laughs) you are not you are not taking somebody's dumb joke and trying to put them on par with some dictator in the past who called people insects come on
2: that is that is so absurd and embarrassing i mean it was a sort of command performance it would have been if it hadn't been so detached from any norms of like r- human discourse but like i mean but it was i mean to to utterly i mean to to stick to that line of argument without even just like you know uh opening with i know that it might sound silly in a conversation about bed bugs but you know just some sort of some sort of like framing of it to let people to try to help people into your your wild point of view um and also yeah i mean it's like no this wasn't some like uh, this wasn't some you know totalitarian uh dictate some totalitarian metaphor to like you know quite to to put calling the question the humanity of a class of people this was a joke about bed bugs that was a response to a tweet about bed bugs you know, I mean, it's a very like the joke is so clear that there's no way he didn't get it. It pains he, uh, me to have to say that. But yeah.
0: no, but it, it sounds like what we were talking about on Tuesday with the Trump allies who are combing through people's tweets and trying to willfully misinterpret them. Yeah, that th- that what he said on MSNBC is really, really close to that. And for as much as Brett Stevens hates Donald Trump, that's pretty ironic. We heard a lot of people, David. Invoke the Streisand effect this week, mm-hmm. which is what happens when you try to, you know, try to snuff out something embarrassing about you and actually just turn it into a much much bigger story. Right? Do do you think Brett Stevens knew that was going to happen, or do you do you think do you? I'll put it this way: Could he have possibly not known that as soon as he sent that email, he was exponentially increasing the chances of Bedbug Gate? becoming this all-consuming media event instead of this obscure and mostly unread tweet?
2: No, I mean I if he was smart he might have been able to foresee it, you know, if, or he he might have been able to foresee the possibility of it, but I I mean obviously I don't think he would have sensed it if he had thought that was I mean if he had considered it. Um I'm not sure that he was thinking particularly logically at the time or at least not logically in in the way that we would define the term, but um but no, I mean I don't think anybody that that, fle- that that like that tries to flex that sort of power. I well, let, let me rephrase that. Anybody that would send that email to the professor and the provost at the same time with that sort of dick-wagging insinuation pro- probably thinks that he's already so famous that there's no amount of joking on Twitter that could really affect his or you know there's no amount of reaction from the twitterati that could affect his his stat- his, his status. Right? I mean, he's got to assume that he, I mean, he, he, he just, he can't have, he can't have assumed, he can't have thought any of this would happen.
0: And that might be the thing he understands the least is the place of the New York Times columnist in media and Twitter circa 2019. Right. He still is imagining we're in the Maureen Dowd, Anthony Lewis, Tom Friedman glory days. Whereas now (laughs) those people just, just, you know, whatever podium they were on has been sawed down completely but i guess he still they, thinks it exists in the
2: old way the times columnists at this point ex- exist only as twitter punching bags i mean their their ideas their ideas matter way less than the you know snark that they get on social media platforms
0: i would say michelle goldberg has has mostly avoided that I'd say weirdly Ross it. There's a lot of strange new respect for Ross Douthat that kind of burbles up every couple of years. Brett
2: Stevens, the existence of Brett Stevens may have something to do with that, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> that's fair enough. And am I missing anybody? No, not Friedman, not Dowd, not Frank Bruni. Yeah that's, about, yeah, that's about it. No, that's uh, probably on- it. On Tuesday, Stevens deleted his Twitter accounts. So now, now it's not just his assistant reading. the. And by the way, you didn't really quit Twitter. If you just told somebody else to read Twitter on your behalf you and tell you all the stuff people said about you, including tweets from George Washington professors, you really didn't quit Twitter. That's like saying, I quit drugs. It's just someone else is shoving things up my nose. No, no, no. Yeah. You, you, you're still on. You're still addicted. You, you right. are addicted to Twitter. I love this from listener DRN3030, uh, who writes, should we work in a classic Bill Simmons trope? Did the championship belt for Twitter self-owns just pass to <laughs> Brett Stevens? And and I love this idea, David. I feel like Luis Mench was the champion, and then <laughs> she lost the belt to the Krasenstein brothers. And then oh, at wow, some yeah. point, at some point when they were literally owned so bad that they were off Twitter it went to Brett Stevens, but since yeah. Brett is off Twitter, he can't defend the belt, so he has voluntarily passed it along to relinquished Barry Weiss. It? Yeah, relinquished <laughs> it, and but, Bar- Barry Weiss found it sitting in the uh, Times Bureau somewhere and picked it up and walked away with
2: I'm it. I'm glad that you. Mi- I'm glad that you mentioned Barry Weiss because before we get out of here, we I mean it, we 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 have to mention that that Brett Stevens is I mean has literally written about the dangers of disappearing free speech on college campuses more than once right i mean he he is he is quoted throughout the, all the coverage of this as saying yes. uh our na- or no no he, he quoted david french as saying in a tweet our nature our nation cannot maintain its culture of spe- free speech if we continue to reward those who seek to destroy careers rather than rebut ideas um he's i mean he, this is this is a stalking horse of his and also i don't i i am deep, I, I really want to find whatever twitter account or Uh, website that I don't know about or RSS feed, whatever it is, like old fashioned pamphlet that all of these that so many public figures are getting that lead them to believe that free speech on college campuses is a bigger issue than uh, conflict in the Middle East or climate change or anything else. Like this is like literally the most important thing all the way down to like Pete Davidson going off on kids in a comedy set in Florida today, I guess, or yesterday. Like when it when this became the number like what you're reading that is skewing your view to such an extent like this is some humanitarian crisis. I I really want to find out where everybody's getting their news. I guess it might have been Brett Stevens Twitter timeline. I hope that's not the case because, man, these people are going to be adrift going forward.
0: Yeah, where are we gonna where are we gonna get our news if not from Brett Stevens' Twitter feed? All right, David, <laughs> time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Speaking of Twitter, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always gratefully received. On the subject of Brett Stevens, this wasn't overworked, but just awesome. A tweet from the redoubtable Bobby Big Wheel, who writes. We're all going to look stupid when we find out that Brett Stevens's parents were murdered in front of him by bedbugs as they were leaving the opera. Thanks to uh, Nick Field for that one. (laughs) It's pretty inside, but I like it. Boris Johnson, new prime minister of the UK, who has not been nearly a big enough figure on this podcast, was at the G7 meeting this week, David. and He was talking about trade restrictions with the United States. He said, Melton Mowbray pork pies, which are sold in Thailand and in Iceland are currently unable to enter the U.S. market because of I don't know some sort of Food and Drug Administration restriction. Uh, the pork pie producers came forward to say that no, Boris Johnson, we do not sell pork pies to Thailand or Iceland. What are you talking about? And it was an overworked Twitter joke to say Boris is telling <laughs> pork pies. Or I th- the full, if we <laughs> if we want to go all in, it's I don't Adam and Eve it. Boris is telling pork pies. Sorry. (laughs) Apologies to all UK listeners for me screwing that up. Thanks to Tony Groves for sending it in tweet from the AP this week, David, about those fires raging in Brazil. Uh, The G seven countries agreed to an immediate $20 million fund to help Amazon countries fight wildfires fires. Excuse me. It was an extremely overworked Twitter joke to note how comparatively little money this was. Uh, Here are some examples. Netflix paid $100 million to stream Friends. Uh, The budget of the Adam Sandler vehicle, Jack and Jill, was $79 million. Andrew Wiggins made $26 million last year, and this from our own Roger Sherman. Faced with a potentially irreversible climate catastrophe, the richest countries on Earth have committed slightly less money than Nick Foles' average salary. (laughs) Thanks to James Beard, Mitch Gaines, arms on the track, Chris Fitzpatrick, and Heartland Henry. And finally, big news from the White House which the president has fiercely denied for some reason. According to Axios's Jonathan Swan and Margaret Telev, Trump has suggested multiple times, here I am quoting, to senior Homeland Security and national security officials that they explore using nuclear bombs to stop hurricanes from hitting the United States. Nuclear bombs. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Here I am, nuke you like a hurricane at Scorpions. Thanks to usually JB. David, do we want to hear a little bit of uh, Scorpions for the young kids out there? Please. Scorpion's not the official band of the press box. That position has been. Not
2: yet. Not yet. Watch out.
0: (laughs) Maybe we'll do our own championship belt. If you reach back (laughs) to the artistic embarrassments of the 80s to describe the political embarrassment of today, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. (laughs) All right, David, before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff The Story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss. Break Stuff The Story of Woodstock 99 is about a music festival that took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and it was set to the soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary is going to give you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else like the Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download. In addition to Can't Miss Originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one, PressBox. Whether you're into music, TV and film, comedy, sports or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash After that, it's $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash press box for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash press box. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. I think we need to start this section with Lawrence O'Donnell. It was a big story Tuesday that Deutsche Bank has in its possession Trump tax documents that Congress is trying to get its hands on. What could be in those documents? Well, MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell had a scoop. And Tuesday, in a bit of crosstalk with a fairly stunned Rachel Maddow, this is what O'Donnell had to say. This single source close to Deutsche Bank has told me that the Trump Donald Trump's loan documents there show that he has co-signers. That's how he was able to obtain those loans and that the co-signers are Russian oligarchs. What? Really? <laughs> no, not really. Not really, Rachel. On Wednesday after the segment, Trump attorney yeah. Charles Harder sent a letter to MSNBC asking for a retraction. And on Wednesday... O'Donnell tweeted last night. I made an error in judgment. The item didn't go through our rigorous verification and standards process. I shouldn't have reported it. And I was wrong to discuss it on the air. David, I'm not going to do that thing where I retroactively claim I knew this was going to be wrong because I really didn't pay that much attention to it when I first saw it, but I, I, I can vouch for the fact that my first reaction was. Wait, multiple Russian oligarchs sign these papers? <laughs> Is that a thing? Is this like when the five families of the mafia meet? Like, oligarchs get together and go, hey, we need to, hey, we got some paperwork. We need to sign this guy's, this guy Trump's loan. That just felt, <laughs> felt really off for some reason.
2: Yeah. First of all, it, w- what an incredible unforced error. Mm-hmm. And, Maybe this is a little bit too in the weeds, but you know, they have they always have these little those little bumper conversations on MSNBC between shows where they're just like, "Hey, we talked about this a little bit during the during the uh Rachel Maddow Chuck Todd segments of the of the um of the MSNBC debate, but it's like they're just like like actively trying to 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 come across as buddies on MSNBC at uh, when they're switching shows. Um and it all seems very staged. I guess this is an, this is proof that it's not actually that staged because he's just like just doing some little like you know, backroom talk about some rumor you overheard the bar the night before or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, I think if there's anything that Maddow has proved in the MSNBC overall, is that it's the, I mean, you you can stick to just like the more mainstream conspiracy theorizing or just insinuations of wrongdoing and still, you know, get people going. You don't need to just like say nonsense, just a really weird story. And particularly weird that, you know, I mean, that he said it, that it was a the Trump civil attorney immediately threatened to sue MSNBC. And then they retracted uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was forced to retract in a tweet. I mean, the whole I mean, it just all seems so strange.
0: I think whenever you you see a scoop and it's from the cable news opinion host. Yeah. You immediately should just be like, wait, what's happening here? Because one, places like MSNBC have a really good team of actual reporters. And two, they have seemingly every Washington Post and New York Times writer who hasn't signed with CNN signed to a contributor deal. So how did this pass all those people and just get to Lawrence O'Donnell? Like That's the first like, huh? And in fact, Michael Del Moro, who's a booker at Morning Joe, tweeted the next morning after O'Donnell made that claim, the information came from a single source who has not seen the bank records. NBC has not seen those records and has not been able to verify the reporting. Kind of a tough two-year run for MSNBC. <laughs> MSNBC. Rachel- yeah, well, remember the Rachel Maddow Trump tax reveal that was yeah. teased for minutes and minutes and turned out to be slightly less enticing. Uh, you also had Joy Reid's "I was hacked" <laughs> bit.
2: <laughs>
0: I don't know if we want to tie in, you know, some of the um, Ronan Farrow NBC stuff, but uh, it's not been a not been a totally spectacular uh, run. I guess it never is for cable news. We could do that for CNN, and certainly we could do it for Fox. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'm just not a Lawrence O'Donnell fan, and I, I'm not a Mm-mm. huge fan of that whole lineup. Not to change the subject, but why not? Um, I'm not a fan of that whole lineup because I don't know if I was just spoiled by Keith Olbermann or something, but I really want people to be kind of funny. I want them to be yeah. funny, funny liberal crusader, or just just a pinch of a pinch of humor in And when it's like I am just very purposefully not funny liberal crusader i just think in the world that that had john stewart and still has john oliver and all these trevor Noah and all these other people it's really hard for me to watch that because i'm just like this is just i'm not getting enough information to to sort of make up for the fact that i just don't find this presentation interesting at all
2: yeah Uh, I mean, I think the present, I think, I think Maddow's presentation, I mean, is, is really interesting and impressive uh, at times. Um, I like Chris Hayes a lot. I think, but I think both of them have a little bit of a sense of humor. And I think, but it's, it's the, it's, if there were still an Oberman esque figure to sort of, you know, who, who is more on the surface humorous, um, maybe that would do more to kind of bring out the humor of the whole thing. But you're right. O'Donnell is, whatever, whatever Oberman is, O'Donnell is the opposite. I mean, he's just, it's just like, you know, political carping as like, you know, in the in the mode of like bad Shakespeare. I mean, he's he, like his his most viral moments are his most sort of uh, just uh, uh, overwrought sort of self-important moments. And, and I and, and I'm not you're right, that does not interest me either.
0: I was looking through O'Donnell's mentions and I found one supportive tweet. It was from Louise Mensch. Uh, she writes, you declared it single sourced and you qualified it. Best of luck to you. So Lawrence O'Donnell has not lost Louise Minch. Congratulations on that. Uh, got some amazing news from the world of politics, David. On Wednesday, Tom Steyer did not hit 2% in one more poll, meaning he does Ooh. not make the September twelfth Democratic debate, meaning we only have one debate.
2: Gosh, one. Do we have any do we have do we have any like party sound going on right now?
0: <laughs> USA. USA. <laughs> 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 I was just imagining that footage of people like from the 20s and 30s dancing on pianos, you know, when good news of the war came over the <laughs> wireless or something like that. <laughs> it is honestly amazing to me because we live in this era of cheap content. You know, there's a new Star Wars trailer out and Ray looks angry. Give, give me a thousand words. We, we got it. This is big news, right? Woj tweets something. We do an hour-long debate about that. But given the chance to have Two nights of debate content America's reporters were like abso-fucking-lutely not not interested yeah. I do not <laughs> I do not want more which is just really funny I mean it's like like we'll all take we'll all take content hits but we'll only take so much
2: yeah no I mean this is just I, I think everybody was just sort of exhausted by the prospect of it. I mean just the same way that we were it's 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 um everybody's kind of ready to move on to phase two of this campaign. And, uh, and, and I don't think having a bonus debate on a Friday night was going to help anybody in their decision-making process.
0: Now, some bad news. The Thursday night debate live coverage here at the press box is three hours long. So there's that, (laughs) uh, because she didn't make that third debate. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has left the presidential race. I liked this tweet from Nate Silver. If I were Gillibrand or someone, I'd be annoyed with the various random white dudes who entered the race late with no real rationale for their campaign, made it more of a clown show, understandable that voters would just want to focus on the top four to six candidates in that case. So that's a good point because she th- there did get to be this period, and I think it was pretty much after the first debate, certainly after the second debate of just exhaustion among Democratic voters. Like oh, yeah. there's just too many people here. I can't keep track of this. I don't know who's running for president. And the fact that you had a semi-serious candidate like Gillibrand in with some not very serious candidates, it definitely hurts the semi-serious candidate. Which is not to say that the Gillibrand campaign will be remembered really for anything uh, or for capturing lightning <laughs> in a bottle or any other container because it didn't. But that definitely hurt her. Uh, She has not made an endorsement, but tells Alexander Burns in the New York Times, I think that women have a unique ability to bring people together and heal this country, dot, dot, dot. I think a woman nominee would be inspiring and exciting. So we will await now the final stage of the Gillibrand campaign, which is lending her endorsement to someone else. David, we got to start this story with a big disclaimer because Josh Levine, the character at its center, is a pal of ours, but he's right in this case. And it also brings up a very interesting issue about podcasts and plagiarism. So to recap, Levine wrote a big piece on Slate and then a book and then a podcast about a woman named Linda Taylor, who was the notorious welfare queen that Ronald Reagan and others turned into a racial, political, cultural lightning rod. There is a podcast called The Dollop that thought this was an interesting idea. And in 2017, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds, the comedians who do the dollop, did a live podcast in Chicago where they read giant chunks of Levine's work. They did not credit him at all, verbally or otherwise, to the crowd. When that live event was then formally turned into a podcast, there was no credit except for a link on a Squarespace site where they listed Josh's work. Now, the dollop has done this before. They did it two years, in fact, before this. There was an online throwdown about that, and then they did it again. Levine said in a Twitter thread that he's not invoking any kind of legal claim here, but calls it unethical, ungenerous, rude, and shitty. What did you make of this
2: whole situation? I'm intrigued by it. I mean, definitely. We should also say that Josh's tweet storm um, came on the heels. I'm not going to say that he was plagiarizing. Maybe inspira- inspired by. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, just kidding. But he was came on the heels of a, I guess a Buzzfeed report was the initial place that, that the that the popular uh, podcast Crime Junkie um, was accused similarly of of uh, plagiarizing other sources uh, and uh, and um, then deleting episodes uh, where they were claimed to have plagiarized. Yes, this is Stephanie McNeil in BuzzFeed on August 15th. We'll put that out on our Twitter feed as well. Go ahead. It's a really interesting situation because I think that the examples that both of... of The the two podcasts that were cited here are um, unquestionably instances of plagiarism, right? But plagiarism, just like so many other things, is is one of those kind of you-know-it-when-you-see-it categories. Um, But there's a lot of gray area in between. I mean... (sighs) There are plenty of podcasts out there that that go out of their way to cite sources, right I mean there are um well the slate podcast for one i mean this isn't exactly the same as citing sources, but they were they were on you know they were always posting show pages that had uh you know kind of posts that had every every story that they referenced every everything that was cited and they would you know have links and everything else uh that' was easily accessible to the average listener um there are certainly uh, historical podcasts like the ones that we're talking about right now that are i mean like Dan Carlin, who's like wildly popular, you know, will cite we'll cite his sources at, in real time on the podcast as he's reading from them over and over again. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is a there there is a it, it, one can see how one falls into this trap. Right. I mean, if, that you kind of have a bunch of different sources and you're just like and you're you're you're, you're transforming. There is a transformative aspect to it. Right. You're changing the medium. You're you're uh, you're you're. Doing it in a more performative way, you're in, inserting jokes and and, and uh, commentary throughout. Um, I guess the question for me is is less, you know, how could someone be so evil and like how can someone be so dumb as to not just reference Josh Levine in, in their podcast, right? Or or, or all the, uh-huh. the various be- reporters who who are in Crime Junkie? Because if you're gonna make the case that your stuff is transformative, you must be you. you it, it must be clear. You, one would think it'd be clear that you that it's there's no loss in this and just briefly mentioning them at the top or the you know mid when you're reading from their sort or from their original article or whatever else i mean it's it's literally a second you know in a in an hour-long podcast like what would the problem be here Um, i don't think any
0: frequently mentioning them every you know i don't know 10 15 minutes and going and by the way i'm relying on josh levine's excellent slate article check it out and then keep reading i mean i don't that seems i don't think anybody's listening
2: i mean Maybe I maybe I misunderstand because I mean I don't listen to I don't listen to either of these podcasts that are that are that are uh, in question here. But like I said, I've listened to Carlin in the past. You listen to stuff like well, I'm trying to think of what else. So like last podcast on the left, which is you know talks about like you know, horror stuff and 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 cults and murders and whatever else. Like they always reference what they read for the podcast and they do it over and over again when they're reading from it. And, and you're right, it's not that big of a deal if it's a quality podcast. Nobody's going to the podcast for your excellence and synthesis, historical synthesis, right? I mean, it's because you just like. Like the presenters, you like the presentation, you like this, you know, you like that, you like just like hanging out and, and learning a little bit. Um, but one can understand, I mean, when obviously Josh had some, 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 you know, screen grabs or whatever else from, from this whole thing and, and from Reddit, I think. And he said, you know, where people were kind of complimenting the content of some of these episodes and, and, and obviously had no idea that it was anyone but the, the host that put it all together. Um, it just, yeah, it, it's, it seems very just, like wrong headed like how could you how, how you could have even gotten to that i don't know, I don't know. yeah
0: well I, and i think almost we almost should take the word plagiarism out of it even though this is really plagiarism like they read giant chunks of josh's work word for word for word yeah but let's let's push the word plagiarism to the side because to me that makes it seem like a journalism dispute about yeah you know sourcing and credit this is just a creative people dispute When you're a creative person, you understand that what you do has value and you don't want somebody else to just take it and use it on their own and give either negligible or no credit for it. That's what it, that's all it is. And these guys are comedians and podcasters. And I listened to the kind of, I don't know if this quite counts as an apology. This is what they came up with on a recent episode of the dollop in terms of, you know, what had happened and trying to make sense of.
1: Uh, so I want to talk about something really quick. Um, there's been uh, a lot of a lot of stuff going on with podcast and uh, podcasts and sourcing, and it's in the news and stuff. So. Um... So uh, I think a lot of podcasters are not familiar with sort of uh, the rules, which uh, I think we are one of them. Um, you know, we source everything. Uh, we put a link in every, um, every description of every show to link to stuff. Uh, journalists, you know, w- would like more to happen. Um, so we're going to start following the lead of like what uh, My Favorite Murder does and last podcast on the left. So at the end of each episode, I'll read out the sources um, just to give props to those guys who are doing a lot of work. Yeah. Cuz you know there's there's a there's a legal thing and there's an ethical thing and and you know we were told just do this it's how you do it it's legal yeah. so we're going to do more.
2: Yeah. And then you can also wanna... see those on the iTunes uh, yeah. when
1: you go to the And office. I don't want to upset anybody. We're trying to do the right thing here and we're yeah. trying to we're trying to do everything. It's just that you know we're stumbling along and figuring stuff out as we go. Yeah. It's it's just you know it's the way it is. Yes.
0: Let me just say why I find that explanation to be bullshit. These dudes are comedians. Is it cool if I go to the comedy store in LA tonight? Yeah, And 75% of my routine is their comedy routines word for word. And I'm adding my own jokes. I'm remixing it a little bit. I'm putting putting a little Brian Curtis in there, but I do 75% or whatever, 35%, 45% of their routine. And then I credit them on my website later. Like, by the way, these jokes were from Dave Anthony. That's not cool, dude. That would make me a joke thief. Yeah. This is this is the equivalent of being a joke thief. There's no there's no difference,
2: or or to put it in the I mean back into the into the kind of switching mediums rubric. I mean, what if you yeah you took somebody's state one of their stand up routines and just wrote it as a column on Slate.com?
0: Yeah, like here's here's my humor column.
2: Yeah, you can't. I mean, yeah, obviously that would be theft. Um, I think it's true that 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 podcasting as an as an art you know is sort of the wild west. I think that there's and I mean to be. To be overly I mean specific here. there's a lot of quote unquote comedians that have podcasts that aren't like comedians in the way that we think you know that these guys aren't like headlining you know the comedy store or whatever. but um, uh, to you know, regardless, they should they, there's they don't have editors, they don't have people in charge that tell there's not a previous generation of podcasters that tell them how to do things. Most of them have their system established before they get any measure of fame or notoriety um, for podcasting anyway. So, I mean, I understand how those mistakes are made in the beginning, but to go back to my thing, like I, my, my, my question about how, why you would do this because it's so easy, it'd be so easy to fix it. I mean, the only thing that makes sense is not that you're worried, it's not that you're embarrassed that you have sources, but it's that, in, in you, and you see this in, in the case of Josh's, uh, you know, his, his story about, about his him being the only source. I mean, you're embarrassed that you only have one source. You're embarrassed that you are taking something whole cloth from someone else. Um, and not doing any synthesis and not doing any research. You are reading an article and presenting that as your own stuff. And, yeah. and that, that's, that's where the transformative uh, you know, argument just sort of breaks down. If, you had, if, if there was any work done, um, then I don't think there'd be any, any need to hide the lack of sourcing.
0: I'd push, I'd push the ball five yards even more down the field. And I'd say, you don't mind your audience thinking that you wrote all this stuff. Josh is a good writer. So you read his words and they sound and you kind of, you know, add a few of your own and change a few transitions and throw in a few jokes here and there. It makes you sound really good. If I read one of Josh's pieces on this podcast, I'd sound really good and it would, it would cut down my work considerably. But I don't think people doing this mind people thinking that at all. And again, that's, that's where to me, let's not talk about plagiarism. Let's not talk about a journalism dispute. Let's just talk about not being an asshole and crediting people properly. Yeah. That that's the thing here. Right? All basically, you know, there's whole there's there's when we ever we have journalism disputes, some of them are about pure plagiarism. Did you use my words? Did you quote me directly? Of course that actually did happen in this case. But most of them are about sourcing. You know, did you give me a generous enough credit? Yeah. Given how much you relied on my labor.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: the test for that is are you being an asshole or not? <laughs> and this is being an asshole.
2: That's yeah, just what it is. Right.
0: That is just what it is. I read a, a tweet from the Dollop's account in January 2018. They were mad because someone had stolen a t-shirt company had stolen art uh, for the t-shirts, and said this is terrible. Says it, and and this is stolen art. Oh, that's interesting. What an interesting thing. I do also agree with your your point about the wild west of podcasts. And you know why? Is because I don't think if if this had appeared as a written work it would have been pretty likely that the author Levine in this case would have seen it. I don't think the people, people aren't, there's, there's very hard for people to find this stuff. Even if it's a popular podcast, you Mm -hmm. saw this with crime junkie. As soon as a woman who had done all this work, listened to an episode of crime junkie, she's like, wait, those are my words that appeared in an Arkansas newspaper. That's my work. And that got, that got taken down immediately. And I also think there's this thing. I think there's this larger cultural thing now with, because of the existence of wikipedia that we think all history is just creative commons now right how many how many podcasts by the way have you heard just read a wikipedia page just like oh here's let me tell you something about uh, this and just read like paragraphs of it off sure as if it were if it, as if they had written that statement uh-huh. i just think there's a sense that history is just wikipedia all history and hey these are mm-hmm. hey man these are just facts i mean you can't you can't copyright facts i'm just reading to you about history it's like no no You're reading, you're reading the work of somebody who did all the work to put those facts together, to bring something out. This is not the Continental Congress, the welfare queen that took a ton of hard fucking work. And that's not, that's not just usable material. That's not just the, the, the bin that you can go, you know, the, the penny jar at the gas station in case you're a few cents short that that's somebody's work and you took it. And, and I just. I'm with you. I mostly just don't get it at all. And I don't, I don't buy explanations that this is some hard to understand concept that is unique to journalism. It's, it's a concept that's unique to everything and you don't do it. That's
2: it. Yeah. I mean, specifically in the case, well, first of all, we should say that, that the, the crime junkie, uh, plagiarism was brought to light by the reporter's name was Kathy Fry for, uh, the, uh, with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. And, um, and they just sent. it, They finally sent, not finally like it took too long, but they sent a cease and desist letter to the to the podcast today. Um, as we're recording this, anyway, um, or and they it reported it down. today. Yeah, I mean, and the, and, but but the but the um, you know, I think that there's a lot of just a lot of details in Josh's uh, in Josh's tweets. You know, about how the sources when they were posted, were posted on like a separate website, a Squarespace website. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of effort has been gone through. I mean it seems like a lot of effort it, there there's a lot of energy being spent um for something that someone is like blissfully unaware of, right? I mean it's it just it it I think yeah. you're right. It it's impossible. I think it's it's hard to imagine that they don't know that they're doing something wrong here in, in in all these cases. And um and certainly like surreptitiously deleting podcasts doesn't lend any credence to your argument that you, you know, just made a simple mistake. Um, hiding credits somewhere and then sometimes not posting them doesn't, doesn't, you know, help your argument, uh, in that way either. And, um, and it's just, it just all seems, I mean, like I said, I mean, but it does just kind of go back around. Yeah. It's, it's being a dick, but it it seems like being, it's the least significant thing to your podcast. You know I mean? Or to me, it seems that way. It just seems like so simple to not be a dick. And I mean it goes for a lot of different areas of life, but <laughs> how this doesn't seem that complicated to do the right thing here.
0: Fascinating piece, David, that I want to cite in every way humanly possible is an NBC investigation by Brandy Zadrosny and Ben Collins into the newspaper The Epic Times and the unlikely way it has joined the Trump news ecosystem. If you have ever seen The Epic Times somewhere at a newsstand or in a newspaper box it is the newspaper associated with the falun gong which is a chinese spiritual practice that fiercely opposes china's communist government Uh, and as collins and Drosny report believe judgment day is around the corner etc etc paper has been around for a while it was not a particularly political paper at least in non-chinese politics and in the last six months, Zadrozny and Collins write, The Epic Times quote spent more than one point five million dollars on about eleven thousand pro-Trump advertisements, dot 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 more than any organization outside the Trump campaign itself. I'm still quoting here. these video ads in which unidentified spokespeople thumb through a newspaper to praise Trump. <laughs> <I'm> already laughing. <laughs> Pedal conspiracy theories about the deep state and criticize the fake news media hmm. because anyone who's pro-trump in the press gets led into the white house the next day the epic times has gained access to many of the president's allies listen to nbc's brandy Zadrovny explain
1: they have um, gone from a really fledgling newspaper where no one was really reading it, it cost a dollar, sometimes it was free on the streets of New York, and now they are everywhere. Their senior editors were in Trump Tower earlier this year interviewing Laura Trump. They're at CPAC. They're interviewing congressmen, um, celebrities like you know Diamond and Silk and Candace Owens and Ted Cruz. They're really coming up in the conservative movement and it's important to know who's behind this
0: not sure what the bar to getting the diamond and silk interview was, but I guess Laura Trump was kind of an impressive get in that world on Monday. David Facebook cut off the Epic times from advertising, but not before the two authors Zodrosny and Collins of <laughs> MSNBC, excuse me, of NBC had reported that some of the Epic times new ads were appearing under page names like the honest paper and pure American journalism. So, they weren't appearing as Epic Times ads anymore. They were like, "This is this this ad is from pure American journalism," and I don't know. I mean, this is this is this is such an interesting story, and it has got kind of so many implications. But the easiness of penetrating the Trump White House and the Trump campaign is so amazing to me. Yeah, all you have to do is be ridiculously pro-Trump, and you're in. <laughs> it doesn't matter what this newspaper is or what it was before Donald Trump became president. If you suddenly get really really get religion about the president, you know, Laura Trump, come on in. You guys seem great. How about an interview? That that again, that was just what made me
2: raise my eyebrows. Yeah, I mean that <laughs> that's one way the the that one uh I mean one place where one would raise their eyebrows. I mean, the whole story was just I mean, pretty just amazing. Um, I'm always just sort of, uh, you know, I'm always just sort of um, wowed by these. Uh, well, I mean, I don't even know how what the Falun Gong is, is categorized now. I mean, it's a it's a, it is a, a spiritual practice, a spiritual community that is you know functionally morphed into a doomsday cult. At least this this group of it here, um, and it's just, I mean, it's just kind of wild to see. A, to see a, a religious sect or a philosophical sect that just convinces itself um, of you know the the coming rapture, the coming doomsday, to such a degree that like they are willing to go out of their way to to ensure that it happens. I mean, it's it's a uh, you know hypocritical and, and nonsensical in so many ways, but it's not you know specific to this group. But I'll get off my religious uh, soapbox for now. Um, you're right. I mean, the access is is just sort of crazy that they would get that kind of. Um, You know, all you have to do is just like write some pro Trump pieces and, and spend a couple mil on ads, and all of a sudden you're just like sitting in the throne room. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty you know, impressive how direct a line that is.
0: I was reminded of that guy, I remember from the Washington, Washington Times, Bill Salmon, who got uh-huh. all that access to George W. Bush and produced uh, the following books. I looked up his uh, oeuvre at any cost, how Al Gore tried to steal the election. Fighting back the war on terrorism from inside the White House, Misunderestimated the president battles terrorism, media bias, and the Bush haters. And finally, David, strategery, uh, George W. Bush is defeating terrorists, outwitting Democrats, and confounding the mainstream media. <laughs> what a run! Yeah, that now that's getting inside the White House. <laughs> Epic Times got some work to do. Listener mail, David. On Tuesday, we got to talking about canaries and coal mines, and we tried to run with that metaphor. It turns out, whatever we said. Canaries do not chirp when there's poison gas in the coal mine. They die. They just die. Apologies to any dead canaries we may have offended. That was sent in by Cody Wilson, Martin Murray, Andrew Hertz, and Chris Chaitin. Uh, Chris Fitzpatrick, another listener, reminds us of this, and I'm glad he did. Did you see that video that was going around all week of the woman manhandling a guy at a fast food restaurant? Like a big fight, and she was throwing him around all over the place.
2: I don't think so. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of fast food restaurant fights, but I don't think I saw this one.
0: <laughs> I just, I, I see a lot of respectable and semi-respectable media types doing color commentary on that stuff. Can, can we not <laughs> do that? Can we, do, do you, don't you watch those kinds of things that are, and are like, do we know what's happening here? No, do we do never we know, know even what's know happening. Do not know who these people are? It, it feels like one step away from the bum fights video thing that was going on like 10, 20 years ago, whenever that was. And you're just like, this just seems horribly. Exploitative? Yeah. And, you know, if Joe Rogan wants to comment on it, that's great. But I, I just, everybody else, please know. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Tuesday's oh, headline no. was about an Australian scientist. She studies sea snakes by the seafloor. We're going to stick, David, with the New York Times. We're also going to stick with animals. And we're also going to stick with Australian animals. With a story sent to us by Patrick Grinter. It's a story by Annie Roth about an animal called the Kaluta. The Kaluta. And by the way, this is another one just like the sea snake story. I recommend you go ahead and read the whole thing. It is fascinating. Forget the headline, just read the story. Anyway, Annie Roth uh, writes that the Kaluta is a marsupial. It's kind of mousy looking. And the Kaluta, David, is what they call semelparous. New word for me, semelparous. And Samelperus means that. When they mate, they die. When the male Kaluda mates, it dies. Roth writes for male Kaludas, sex is suicide. Okay? Now we're gonna go with the Twitter headline here. Not the not the one on the piece, but the one the Times used on Twitter. What is the strained pun headline about Kalutas that die after mating?
2: Um Oh my gosh, I need it's not dead and married. Uh, d- uh, l- uh <laughs> love like and death, love and um, uh, like I love you to death or something. What What would this be? It's this is the um, a little more punny, a little more, you know, um, go
0: outside the word love a little bit.
2: Oh my God, so it's se- something with sex. Um, yeah, sex. Think of it. Uh. Think of some synonyms for
0: sex. Oh, okay, ra- semi raunchy uh, synonyms.
2: Doing um. I assume it's not a, like a, like a, just a plain curse word. Uh, no. Uh, Let's start you off here. Um, These
0: marsupials
2: go out. Oh, with a bang. <laughs> is that it? Chris <laughs> is not here to not at me go today. go out with a bang. Okay. That's good. That's good. I like that. I like that.
0: Pretty, pretty transgressive for the New York Times, don't you think?
2: Yeah. I like that.
0: These marsupials go out with a bang. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis, Research by Chris Almeida, the production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday, bright and early with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David.
2: See you later, Brian.
0: David... Yeah I think you've set a new standard What? I would welcome the opportunity For you to come by my home Uh Um Hey asshole Yeah Are you being an asshole or not? Unquestionably <laughs> And this is being an asshole Yeah Unethical Yeah Ungenerous Yeah Rude Yeah And
2: shitty Uh yes Yes Congratulations on that. Yeah, I mean that.
0: <laughs> That's not cool, dude.
2: Right. Do you want to take this outside?
0: I would like you to come over to my house so we can talk about this like gentle. Yeah. No, not really. Yeah. Come on. That is that is so absurd and embarrassing. Wait, it just seems like so
2: simple to not be a dick.
0: One bullshit. Two
2: bullshit. Um, but the um, dick wagging, as one does,
0: <laughs> as one does.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Why, why can't we go back to when, when things were civilized? Why can't we do that? Yeah, I mean, it was. I quit drugs. It's just someone else is shoving things up my nose. Right now, come on. <laughs> fucking Absolutely not. Not interested. <laughs>
1: <laughs> USA USA